Welcome to Dealcast, brought to you by Accurus. I'm Juliana Needham. Today we're talking about shareholder activism in Europe with activist monitors William Mace. But firstly, we're looking at Barclays and the potential separation of the investment bank from the high street banking business. Deal reporters Gustav Sandstrom is here. Gustav, some shareholders are reportedly keen to see Barclays get rid of its investment banking business. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, that's right. We have seen some unsourced report which claim that something like 20% of the shareholder base is pushing for a split. The reason seems to be that the investment bank is simply not profitable enough. There is some truth to it because um, if you look at the last quarter, investment banking was something like an 8% return on equity and, and that's about a third of what you got in, in the retail business. So that's where the claim seems to be coming from. But then if you look at the problems involved, you would need to have a significant re-rating, presumably, of the two new companies to compensate for the lost synergies and to compensate for the massive complexity and costs that could be involved. And Barclays will need to keep its retail banking separate from the rest of the business anyway from 2019, as that's when the UK introduces new ring fencing rules. How will that affect Barclays as a whole? Well, that's right. And, and just to explain the background, obviously the ring fence will be imposed just to protect the wider financial system to make the retail bank insulated if there's a financial crisis. It will mean a legal separation, but the market experts that Deal Reporter has talked to seem to be quite uh, sure that there will be synergies remaining anyway, so that in its own right might not be enough cost to just split them outright. So the biggest effect we think could be on the timing of any move. It just might not make sense to move ahead before the ring fence is in place, because otherwise there would be so much unclarity about exactly what you were to uh, offload. And this rule will affect other British banks. Are you able to give us a brief uh, overview of how they're planning to deal with it? We haven't seen so many firm indications yet. What we know is that all major UK banks will be involved. There is a cap on, on based on how much retail deposits you hold, which means you then have to separate out retail. This could trickle down even to kind of mid-sized banks, like, um, I haven't yet checked the numbers, but I would imagine that, so let's say, a TSB or Virgin Money or others could also see some effects. But effectively, we're talking big high street names like uh, HSBC, Barclays, obviously, and, and, and so on. Uh, it's, it's costly, it takes lots of time, it takes lots of consultants coming in and working, and nobody yet seems to know exactly how they're going to be affected, but there will be costs involved. And back to Barclays, suppose they do get rid of their investment banking division, what would be the most logical way for them to do it? You can see a couple of scenarios, but the one that could make most sense is to spin it off, which means to just give it to shareholders as a new company listed on the stock market. Reason being that if you try to IPO it or sell it outright, at this stage in, in the business cycle, it just wouldn't fetch a very good price. Now, that could potentially be a road towards a, fi a final sale uh, a few years down the line. Our market experts think that the investment bank is not so big, it's not so bright, it's not so safe, uh, that uh, it could flourish as a standalone. But combined with somebody else, it could make more sense. So, for example, some American banks could see a case to combine with Barclays to get an inroad into Europe, and that could very well be the most profitable scenario. Thanks, Gustav. Now, William, coming to you. For Activist Monitor, you've been covering activism in Europe. What developments or trends have we seen in the last six months? 
We've measured 27 new campaigns launched within the within the past six months, uh, which is slightly down on last year, but still a, a, a huge number when you think about where activism was uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's also um, been a, a marked uh, increase in involvement from US activists coming to Europe, uh, and, 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 and big, the big boys are coming over. Um, we've seen uh, you know, seven US fund-led campaigns um, in that six months, uh, representing an inflow of around 6.2 billion US dollars of capital. And that's just based on the initial investment disclosures that they give. Um, some, in some cases, the activists have gone on to invest even more um, just in that period. Um, it also means that four of the 10 largest US activist investments in Europe um, that have been measured uh, have occurred in the past six months. Um, and that includes names such as Elliot uh, going into BHP uh, and Axo Nobel, um, as well as Third Point um, writing a, a letter to Nestle and Corvex as well, taking a position on the uh, Clarion-Huntsman merger, which it believes shouldn't be going ahead. And why are we seeing so many big US funds targeting Europe? Is it because there, there's so much activism already in the US? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're attracting a lot of capital because of some of the, uh, you know, really good situations that activists have been able to uh, encourage um, an uptick in value in, in, in the US. Um, but the market is slightly more saturated there now. So uh, while there are homegrown activists here in, in Europe, um, the, the US hedge funds are seeing an opportunity, perhaps some low-hanging fruit uh, when they see uh, you know, corporate governance that isn't quite spot on and, and some suggestions that they can make, um, they're, they're keen to put some money behind that. Um, I mean, the other side to that is they need to, have a, uh, they need to be persuasive um, to, the, to the corporate boards, to the companies and to their existing shareholders. Um, so that's a, that's a real skill that's being tested at the moment. I mean, uh, the likes of Elliott may have the money and the ideas to reshape businesses in Europe, but whether they can convince, um, uh, you know, markets and traditional investors who have a long um, institutionalized way of, of doing things, uh, whether they can convince them to to, to join them and support their cause is a, is a whole other matter. And have we seen more activity in certain countries or, or sectors? Um, the, well, activists are notoriously um, agnostic when it comes to sectors. Uh, they are opportunist, um, but UK is usually, um, you know, one of the largest, most active countries for activism. It's one of the most uh, US-like um, jurisdictions in terms of law um, and shareholder rights. So can you explain a bit about how European companies defend against activists? Are they better advised to engage rather than defend? Yeah, well, there is a whole discipline of, of advisory practice around um, shareholder activism and defence. But uh, uh, the more people you speak to now in, in the sort of modern age of activism, uh, defence is a bit of a dirty word. They would much rather use engagement. As you said, um, uh, companies should be proactive um, and, I suppose, attack rather than defend and just just assume that they may have a, share, a, a shareholder activist on their register at some point. Um, therefore, you know, they can look at their business through an outside uh, activist's eye and perhaps, uh, you know, be more proactive about 
creating that engagement platform rather than having a you know putting up the the shutters uh, and defending um, when the barbarians are at the gate. Is there a different approach between the US and European hedge funds? Yeah, I think more broadly, um, US hedge funds are definitely known for being more activist, if you know what I mean. Uh, they are um, more prone to going public, um, to writing angry letters, to using flowery language. Um, but in, in European hedge funds, are definitely not that way. It's more about um, speaking with the board behind closed doors. And if you can't get your way, then going a bit more public. But I think both sides of the Atlantic are, are sort of merging into a kind of hybrid um, model where they can go behind closed closed doors, but uh, if it pops out into the open, then uh, it's all out war. Great. Thanks, William. Thanks, Gustav.